Welcome to Podbless Canada. My name is Irfan Yar. Currently, I'm working with the McDonald Laurier Institute as a researcher with uh, foreign policy and security issues. Today, I'm joined by Constantino Cesarier, uh, who is a fellow in foreign policy studies at Brookings India in New Delhi and Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. His research focuses on India's foreign and security policies as a regional power with a focus on institution and decision-making processes and also on relationship with Europe. In this episode, I would like Mr. Cesarier to talk a little bit about the upcoming election in India. Dr. Cesarier, what do you think is the election is approaching? How do you see the domestic uh, environment, the ecosystem? Thank you, Irfan. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure to be at MLI. Welcome. Uh, and to join this podcast. I think on democracy, you know, we have to recognize that this is a formidable experience. 900 million registered voters across almost 30 Indian states. I think voters uh, and a voting exercise done through uh, digital and electronic machines uh, exclusively. Voting machines going up on mules up the Himalayas, being taken to deserts, being taken across the country. So that's the first, I think, due notice we have to sort of uh, give to India for conducting the largest democratic exercise on planet Earth every few years. That needs to be and should be celebrated because in its own, it's an, an achievement. Yeah. You know, we never know. I think India is uh, always an, uh, an expression of uncertainty. You never know who's going to win, who's going yeah. to lose their bets, their assessments. Um, we'll see what happens with the last four weeks, whether the current dispensation led by Prime Minister Modi and his BGP will be mm-hmm. able to earn the trust again of the electorate in the same way he did in 2014 when he got to power with a tremendous majority, actually an unprecedented majority since the 1980s. Or whether due to a variety of challenges, the electorate uh, has lost trust in the prime minister on his ability to deliver on economic growth, on infrastructural modernization, on uh, bureaucratic reforms and administrative change and therefore punish him and opt for either the main opposition party, the Congress party, Mm -hmm. or a constellation of smaller regional parties, which will then have to form a coalition government. As things stand, I would say in terms of what many of my colleagues who are working more closely on these issues share, I think that Prime Minister Modi has a slight advantage. The anti-incumbency factor is there, but not strong enough, it seems, to change the government. But again, we said the same thing in 2004 when we thought that the then same party would be re-elected, the BGP, and it lost to the opposition and surprised many of us. As you mentioned that uh, India is going to exercise its democratic process through electronic machine voting system. So let me ask you, as we know, given the digital age, do you know, are there some threats of like disinformation and cyber threats? We are much vulnerable to all those issues. How do you see that? Is there any preparation for those issues? So, I mean, on the on the more immediate issue of electronic voting machines yeah. and whether they can be hacked into yeah. or biased in some way, this has been an issue of concern. But according to all inquiries and tests the government has performed and independent authorities have performed, they seem to be fail-proof. 
And of course, I think the larger issue beyond this technical issue, which I think is a non-issue because they've really proven their worth over now 10 years or so, is the issue that you mentioned of um, disinformation, mm -hmm. fake news, yeah, exactly. rumors, which often lead in India to riots, to violence, mm -hmm. to disorder. Uh, that is an issue of greater concern. And also the way narrow extremist agendas or sometimes even corporate interests can yeah. penetrate the information systems and distribution in India and social media in particular. Yeah. Let me raise a counter question. For example, if there is potential hacks possibility in all those things, which country do you think would probably interfere in Indian democratic process? So I think, you know, no one, no country is really interested in undermining the democratic process and the election. We have in seen India. like in the election in the U.S. and U.K. and all those countries. Yeah. We have seen that uh, Russia, hmm. as people say, were mainly involved. There could be that risk in India, too. We've not seen indications so far of that. Very frankly, I think for China or Pakistan, yeah. uh, the rowdiness of Indian elections and the campaign Uh, are well enough to keep India entertained oh, and, yes. and, and divert resources from India. But yes, you're right. There is a risk of other countries to penetrate the Indian electoral system, uh, exercise political influence operations, which will undermine the stability and domestic order in India. There is concern that this could happen okay. too. But I think overall, this is a global trend. You, as you mentioned, yeah. you see it across different democratic countries, the problem of the, uh, let's say, lesser quality of informed debates, greater populist forces, uh, extremist forces taking the limelight and really driving many of the electoral debates. And that's what really is the greatest threat for these democracies. And we're seeing that in India happening too. Uh, and particularly on religious issues, yeah. communal issues, caste issues, they can be very destructive of and undermine mm -hmm. a healthy electoral competition and debate during these oh, campaigns. that's good. So as we know that India is the world's largest democracy, so how do you think India can work with regional democracies to promote democracy in that region or how they can work together to have a positive influence in the region and of course as a whole in the world? Mm -hmm. So I think in many ways what you're seeing is that India, which used to be quite reluctant or not very invested in working together, particularly with other democracies, mm -hmm. is changing its attitude. So in the past, there was a bit of a puzzle. You had this amazing democracy, India, aligning with the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s, right? This strong uh, autocratic system. And you had democratic United States working with the military regime in Pakistan and a one-party state in China. That was the sort of opposing so, axis in South Asia. So it was a bit of a puzzle of why was this democracy not aligning with the remaining other democracies of the free world. I think that's changing. It's changing slowly over the last few years and mostly courtesy China. Because China has approached the world in the last five to seven years, I'd say, in a more assertive, if not aggressive way. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the South China Sea and its new territorial claims. I'm thinking of the influence operations you mentioned before yeah. with Russia too, but China in particular also has exercised some of these influence operations. You see the recent Huawei crisis uh, here in North yeah. America and in Europe. So the political influence operations, the way China has taken a more aggressive posture uh, internationally, but in generally has become more of a capable power and is very influential around the world, 
has made India to reach out to what's called like-minded powers. Yeah. And I'd say like-minded powers, if you look at the list of like-minded powers, they're all democracies. And uh, there is sort of an unclogging of the Indian strategic mind, which is starting to equate its security interests, its race to create alternatives to what the mm-hmm. Chinese are delivering, with an interest in democracy, the rule of law, good governance in these countries. Now, India will take shortcuts like every country and every other democratic country. It would sometimes side with less democratic powers and has a very yeah. strong relationship with Russia, for example. Depending still today. on your national interests. Absolutely. But yeah. there is still a tendency, a growing tendency for India to equate its interests and define its interests in a similar way to other democracies. We see it in two examples. One is the response to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And China and India are sort of taking a position saying that connectivity is great, financing infrastructure is great, what China is doing is wonderful, but there are tremendous concerns about the way China has been operating in terms of creating a level playing field for mm-hmm. private sector companies to participate, also in terms of sustainability of debt traps, which we've talked about a lot in the last few, two years, I'd say, where China often has come in such a formative way, you know, showering these smaller countries with funding, investments, which these countries often are unable to absorb and often unable to pay back to the Chinese and therefore fall into what's called a debt trap where they cannot finance their debt and therefore end up alienating sovereign parts of their countries and leasing them out to the Chinese, the case of Hambantota port in Sri Lanka being the most popular one. But I'll give you the second example, which I find much more interesting. How do you deal with data governance? How do you deal with regulatory frameworks which try to protect the privacy of citizens and at the same time support the state in creating a strong economy which is based on data sharing models and also security threats in particular terror threats right here i think the posture of india has been quite aligned with the european approach the american the canadian interesting dialogues with the Japanese, mm-hmm. because these are countries which are based on the rule of law, yeah. where we're going to have to find balances between citizens and the government, and where citizens are actively involved and in companies in shaping new laws, new regulatory frameworks, which are going to find some type of you know, balance you know, between these imperatives between the citizens and the government. The last time I checked, we didn't see any such debate in China, right? Where the state really runs the show in aggregating, collecting data from its citizens, and with all the discretionary power it, it has, control that data for what it thinks are the national interests, where citizens have no right to access their data, where companies have no rights to access their data, uh, and where data is really the monopoly of the state. So this is a concrete example where you can see that the Indian approach actually aligns much more with the other democratic powers. Good. Interestingly, you point out the issue of South China Sea. Mm. As we know that China is going their military exercises over there, and recently they have also installed the nuclear floating power plant which is kind of a threat to the environment and all those uh, security. How do you see, uh, although it's not related to India, India is not one of the main stakeholders, but how do you see India's stance uh, towards South China Sea? See, uh, don't get me wrong. If you'd put me in charge of the Chinese state of the last 10 years, I would have done every single thing they have done in the last 10 years. 
They've waited their time, economically entangled themselves with across the world, including with the United States and the current trade war is a reflection of that, with East Asia, with Southeast Asia, and now they're leveraging their economic power in political and security terms. Basically, they're telling countries, if you don't comply with us on certain defense, security, and political issues, we will punish you economically. And that's easy if you know, for China, if you're talking about a small country like Sri Lanka, like Cambodia, like the Philippines, you know, it can backfire, but that's yeah. generally been the language we've seen from the Chinese over the last five years. And that's that new assertive China. But, you know, they're legitimately now, from their perspective, extracting the power they have invested in economically. And therefore, it's very important for India and other countries to respond and to coordinate mechanisms to offer alternatives. And no single country, including India, which is the second largest country by population and definitely as leading power in Asia, can afford to match what the Chinese are doing or compete with what the Chinese are doing. What you can do is cooperate and coordinate policies with other so-called like-minded powers and offering alternatives. Mm -hmm. So many smaller countries, you know, are keen in balancing China and India and therefore are, you know, looking up to India and other democratic powers, Canada included, to offer alternatives to what the Chinese are doing. That could be, again, on infrastructure development, that could be on data governance and data sharing, or, for example, on capacity building. On These countries are developing often a need capacity to negotiate with the Chinese, to develop their own technical Mm know-how, to scrutinize a lot of these offers from China, which seem very interesting uh, when they are first offered, but turn often to be quite poisonous in the long term because they really erode the good governance and the rule of law in a lot of these countries. Let me bring this discussion to a wider Indo-Pacific region of which Canada is very much a part of. What do you think, like, is Indo-Pacific aligned to counter the assertive China? What do you think? So Indo-Pacific is a code word I think we've all been using between governments, experts, to define this larger club, if you want, or association of like-minded democratic powers, which Mm -hmm. share concern about the rise of China and are trying to develop alternatives, whether it's benchmarks for connectivity projects, like I mentioned, or the data governance issue, Mm -hmm. right? So the typical question is, is this an alliance against China? No, it's not. I think if you look at the way the Prime Minister of India, Modi, has defined the free and and, and open Indo-Pacific strategy, in Singapore recently, he's emphasized the point that this is an an inclusive architecture, that if China is willing to revise its modus operandi, its behavior over the last few years, it is welcome to join and participate in this dialogue of how to, for example, uphold the freedom of navigation, of how to uphold the importance of human rights in foreign policy. Now, until now, we've not seen any indication of China moving its behavior, adapting its behavior. On these two accounts, for example, on freedom of navigation, China has rejected everything we held for granted in terms of the definition of freedom of navigation over the last few decades. It's it's changed its definition and is trying to define freedom of navigation in its own way, which benefits itself. And on the second account of human rights, you now have the Chinese penetrating United Nations institutions and saying, we define human rights very differently. This Mm -hmm. is our definition. There's no other word than conceptual terrorism for this, because you're using a word and you're undermining any possible dialogue because I'm starting to think and define things in a very different way from you. So a dialogue is 
pretty much impossible, which is exactly the objective of the but Chinese. But we have United Nations, why China doesn't abide by the concept of human rights which the United Nations define? Excellent question. And, and, and the, the answer is, it does not identify with those concepts because it is an authoritarian state, does not know the language of human rights. Mm. I mean, good luck talking to the Chinese about human rights internally. Not easy with India too, which has several challenges in human rights, yeah. right? And is often accused of abusing human rights. But certainly dialogue is possible with India and it's impossible with China. And domestically, we can see the example of Uyghur Muslim in Xinjiang province of China. Uh, th their human rights are like being grossly violated. Mm -hmm. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, good luck talking to the Chinese about it. And they will refuse, rightly yeah. so, because they don't even understand the concept of why it is important to integrate a minority into an inclusive society, right? Through inducements, through political liberal democratic systems. The story of India, the success story of India, of how 1.2 billion people kept together despite several challenges. We see Kashmir, the Northeast, and people are still at unease often to be part of the Indian Union. But the story of success of this formidable experiment is based on the democratic system. Oh, good. Have India taken an official stance on a Chinese domestic human rights violation? No, I think India has generally abstained from uh, making comments on that. But, you know, for the Chinese, nothing is good enough. The mm -hmm. Chinese are still upset that India hosts the government in exile of the Tibetan government on Indian territory. The Dalai Lama remains an irritant between both countries and the yeah. succession. But my point is largely that your domestic system and values affect the way these countries operate in their foreign policy. Exactly. The way Canada is organized domestically through a federal system uh, that focuses on human rights, on multiculturalism, on indigenous rights, for example, reflects the Canadian experience and is reflected in the foreign policy of Canada exactly. in good and bad ways. Sometimes countries go on a missionary spree and try to impose their values on other countries. Sometimes they're reluctant. India has always been ambiguous about it. It's sometimes spoken quite openly about human rights, hosted the Tibetans, for example, and a variety of other refugees, including the Uyghurs in the late 1940s who came yeah. to India. You have a, a variety of refugees who go to India first, no surprise, they don't go to China, exactly. political refugees, because they see in India the freedom to operate and, and, and a safe haven in many ways. And same with Canada, right, where a lot of immigrants come to because they see this as a free and open harbor for for them to, to be safe. But at the same time in China, you know, we have a different understanding that somehow the state knows best that economic growth comes first before political rights, which is understandable and is an experiment. I find that experiment unsustainable in the long term. If history teaches us one thing is that state control generally goes wrong in the long term, whether in a political dimension or the economic dimension. In your discussion, you talked about data governance. Including me, uh, all many, maybe many audience will be curious to know more about data governance. So could you please briefly shed light on what data governance is and how they can cooperate? See, I'm no expert on data issues, etc. Okay. But I look at it from the foreign policy oh, and the political philosophy angle, if you allow me that word at a, at a think tank. All democracies are based on this contract between citizens and their government, their representative government, where citizens give up some of their freedoms in order to develop and access certain public goods, right? Uh, fortunately, maybe not in the US so much, but we don't have to run around with our guns to protect ourselves. We have the police and the armed forces mm -hmm. uh, to which we've de delegated the responsibility to protect us. 
The data issue is now one of the most striking issues in that contract, which is testing that contract. How much of my data am I willing to give up to the government to protect myself from terrorists, to protect myself from, myself from private interests and companies who are going to try to sell my data? Who's going to store the data? How's the data going to be shared? Basic information, my bank information, information about where I put my kids into school, my mobility, what Uber I take, etc. Yeah. Right Now that debate is interesting because we're having that debate in Canada, in Europe, in India. And again, as I mentioned, we're not having it in China. So when people ask me, well, but democracy, does it really matter? You know, does, does it really matter whether you're democracy or not? Yes, it does. On these issues, you see in India a very deep and fractured debate involving the government, its laws, the parliament, the Supreme Court of India, which actually uh, came into the picture and uh, uh, struck down uh, government legislation on data privacy, NGOs, universities, private companies, they're all part of this debate. And we have seen that in India, the issue of Aadhaar, its privacy. Mm -hmm. We have seen there are a lot of criticism even still going on. They say that the data is not 100% secure mm -hmm. in terms of privacy, you know, security and all those. Yeah. Is, it, is, is it vulnerable, do you think, the Aadhaar issue? So the Aadhaar system, which is yeah. a unique identification system, a massive system by which India collected the biometrics of 1.2 billion people of its citizens, and which has been made a requirement often to access public services, health, education, yes. banking system, voting sometimes, uh, has been questioned by the Supreme Court, right? But yes. see, when you talk about the absolute safety of data, there's Nobody, only two yeah. absolute safe models. The state has all the data and you yeah. have no access to it or you remain in total possession of exactly. your own data and you don't. Both are unsustainable. We have to find a middle path here. Uh, and this is exactly my point about how also Canada and India can cooperate, for example, in developing these best practices mm -hmm. and exchanging best practices on how to, you know, strengthening these data regulatory framework. No, forget strengthening, creating them in the first place, because that's what we're doing yeah. for the first time in the history of these democracies. And on a variety of other issues, I see a very strong potential for bilateral dialogue between Canada and India on these crucial public goods issues, domestic ones, the case of data, and foreign policy ones. For example, issues about freedom of navigation, climate change, multilateralism and the importance of protecting the UN system and, and strengthening it instead of undermining it, and the various sort of liberal institutional norms and institutions you know, we've, we've inherited from the system and how to adapt them. Forget protecting them because they're unsustainable the way they've been designed in the post-war by mostly Western countries. You need to sit now with India, with Indonesia, with Japan, with many African countries with Brazil at the same table and figure a way out to develop a multilateral governance framework which leaves the door open for the Chinese to join. Again, it's not an alliance against them. It's strengthening the system and keeping that inclusive principle there for the Chinese to test their intentions and say, hey, you want to be part of this? You want to join and revise the freedom of navigation principle? Welcome. But this is going to be a debate among equal sovereign nations and not a bilateral initiative where China, it will, defines things the way it wants and then opposes it on other countries. 
Uh, Dr. Constantino, tell us in our conclusion, what would you recommend? Like, what are the common grounds for India and Canada that they can work on to get more relationship with each other? I think we're in a positive momentum now in the India-Canada relationship. It's something I've followed uh, from afar, not very closely, but I think the worst is over, thankfully. Yeah. There were tough moments in the bilateral relationship. But, you know... I prefer a relationship where both democracies engage problems head on and it gets messy. And we saw how messy yeah. it got uh, last year and over the last few months sometimes between India and Canada. But things get out in the open. Uh, you work through them. You have strong civil society engagement, which sometimes is good, sometimes leads to trouble, yeah. as we saw with the diaspora asserting itself often here in, in Canada. And that's fine. And that takes time and that matures a relationship. I prefer that messy inter-democratic dialogue between India and Canada 10 times more than an artificial government-to-government, state-to-state relationship at the highest level, which has no real participation from civil society, from the media, from NGOs, uh, which is the case of the Canada-China relationship, yeah. I think. And I think Canada is finding out the hard way, and particularly now over the last few weeks, of how difficult it is to engage China. And that the illusion that you're going to do just do business with the Chinese. Uh, yeah. For many years, I think many people in Canada and many other countries in the West thought, let's just do business with the Chinese and keep the politics, security, culture, and other issues with other countries. That is unsustainable. When you do business, there's a cost to that business and there's a strong political cost to doing yeah. business. I think China has shown that, uh, Canada has learned it the hard way, and that has made the imperative more apparent for Canada to diversify its relations and to engage India and other like-minded democratic powers around the world in this strong democratic dialogue on how to create an alternative framework for uh, growth, security across the world. Thank you very much for your good discussion and hope to see you again in Ottawa. Thank you very much. For Thank you for having me, Irfan. Thanks. Hello.